Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good evening. Nice to see you all. Who's been to a word in your ear before? There's about half and half. Uh, so for, for new... Uh, Keith has been to virtually every word in your Keith, ear. Keith, yeah, we actually... We, no, we had one the other day when Keith wasn't here, we didn't. We were... It was all very strange, you know, no Keith. Oh, he's in Edinburgh. That's no excuse. <laughs> We're actually a little bit late starting tonight because Keith was in the gents. Uh, um, anyway, those of you who've been here before will know that our proud boast is we start early and we finish early uh, so that you can be looking at the inside of your lids about 9.15, no later, because that's about, that's about how long I can stay away. <laughs> Save for the audience, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, I don't know if it's my great age or uh, a result of the kind of accelerated times in which we live, but I find myself increasingly able to keep track of what's going on now and what might have gone on a few years ago. And I can remember with pin-sharp clarity everything that happened 40, even 50 years ago. But there's a little bit of a hole in my memory which... relates to anything that happened between 20 and 30 years ago, that I find that this stuff now just kind of disappears from our memory very quickly because it's supplanted by new events. And so uh, to, to remedy that, um, that shortfall, uh, I think our first conversation here should, uh, should be very helpful. Uh, and this book that we're talking about is definitely very helpful because it's the, uh, the rise and fall of cool Britannia, told by those who were there. It's called Don't Look Back in Anger. And uh, would you please welcome its author, Daniel Rachel. Right, Daniel, 
Uh, Daniel has been a word in your ear guest in the past, talking about your your previous book, The Walls Came Tumbling Down, which was won a prize, didn't it? I like to feel that we played a part in this. You, uh, yeah, you played a part and uh, and and fed the fivers to the panelists. Right, right. But we both won the same prize, haven't we? Isn't that right? No, sadly, I've not won it. I've been shortlisted, Daniel. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you you did that deliberately, didn't you, <laughs> to make him suffer. <laughs> That's got us off to yeah, a good start. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the Randy Sorry, Newman David. in this particular, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be a shorter <laughs> conversation now. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, Walscombe Tumbling Down very deservedly won the, uh, the Penderin music, music Book Prize, didn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. at least you can say it. When I won it, I couldn't say it. Well, it's a Welsh whiskey, you know, so, you know. I know, and, they, and when you win, they give you a casket. Of of a uh, of whiskey, very good. That, that's worth about six hundred pounds, and they make about three hundred bottles of, of the one type of whiskey, and uh, and I celebrated with it um, with a couple of friends, and we had that much, and you know, uh, and we thought we should just do that. It was ten thirty in the morning, oh, right. and that was it. The whole day was ruled out. <laughs> it's incredibly powerful stuff. Well, it's, sound- about, it's about sixty-two percent. It's extraordinary. Oh, really? oh, very good. Honestly, it's like taking absinthe. We were all. <laughs> it was like some form of a trip. Well, it sounds like <laughs> sounds like a very worthwhile prize. Uh, so, I'm sure your time will he's, come. He's even more bitter now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, Tell us about uh, Don't Look Back in Anger. You know, do you, what's your time period that you're dealing with here in this book? It's essentially uh, the 1990s, uh, but it, but as uh, I think somebody in the Times wrote, it's a long decade, and I like that description, because it depends on the form of culture that the book's talking about. So when it's talking about the artists or the young British artists, their story really starts in the mid-1980s, uh, 86, 87, 88. And you have to come in at that entry point. And then, but then they fade uh, within the story by the end of the 90s. Whereas music... Uh, Brit- starts a bit later. Yeah, Britpop kind of really starts with, with, with Select and Suede, but yeah. it has a kind of a history in Baggy and Manchester. And Tony Blair's story starts mid-93, mid 90, 94, yeah. after John Smith's death. But you kind of have to go back to the death of Margaret Thatcher. So it, 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 it depends on where it is. It, right. it, and, and, it, and then the end point was very definite. It had two... Well, it has two end points. Uh, the, the end of the euphoria... I, I think is very much the death of Princess Diana on the 31st of August 1997. And that kills the euphoria very, very much, which is, if, if there was one illustration of that, it's, the, it's, it's, the, it's how people feel towards Oasis before her death and then how people feel towards them after and the album Be Here Now and the idea of mass celebration really takes a dip. Um, and, and, I met, and, and I was very keen on talking to the contributors as to whether there was a relationship between the euphoria that generates the idea of what gets branded as Core Britannia, that I suggest starts with rave and people celebrate, uh, in a bacchanalian way, going into fields in the middle of nowhere, listening to tribal rhythms and, and letting themselves go, sometimes with the aid of ecstasy, sometimes with the aid not. And, and this very un-British way of just being free and open and okay. expressive. And yet 
the flip of that is that when Diana dies, the British do exactly the same, which whereas previously we grieve in a very yeah, introverted yeah. way and we don't share, we grieved en masse yeah. in a kind of... In a deeply un-British way. In a deeply... But... but, but <laughs> I always thought that was connected to Live Aid, actually. That Live How? Aid had happened, mm. uh, you know, a bit before, and a uh, well, decade before, actually, and, and a huge, the whole country had been brought together yes. by that one moment. It was yes. a real changing point where people really liked the idea of mass uh, hand-holding, feeling yes. a certain way. Yeah. And I think Diana was the same, wasn't no, it? I think you've probably got a point there. People, well, look, people, people camping in Hyde Park and writing poems on the trees and sitting in rings of candles. You for know, live people aid? Like, no, 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 for live aid. No, Lady Di, that's right, yeah. Well, look, we go through, we're going to... And then, sorry, the second end point is, is 9-11, which it is today, isn't it? It is. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. We're recording. And that absolutely is the end point because yeah. it's the beginning of a new world order. Yeah. And, and, it's the, and it's ultimately the end of the love affair with Tony Blair. Right. And, and that was really important to talk to Tony about that, who so is a this, contributor to so the book, this is, I mean, it, it's a, an oral history, isn't it? It's loads of interviews with... with with people participants. And well, the interviews 68. is the source material, okay. and then and then yes, it's in their voices, but I wouldn't say it's a set of interviews. And it's the sixty-eight people that you, yeah. you you did. I mean, Tony then, Blair was one of them, wasn't he? Um, yeah, that was Campbell. Brilliant. I mean, that's yeah. fantastic. John Major, Virginia, Virginia Bottom, John the Major. World. Yeah, it's really impressive. Who did you want to get that you couldn't get? Uh, Damien Hurst. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Chris Evans, did you try? Chris and Chris Evans. Evans. Yeah. I tried both of them. Yeah. And it, it, I just got, I got nowhere. And uh, How do you go about getting people for a thing like this? Do you send off, you know, formal letters? Yeah, I mean, I didn't think Tony Blair would do it. Uh, uh, because, I mean, we were briefly talking about this before. Because, I mean, he's a, he's a global ambassador now. And his priorities... Are, are vastly different from what they were in the 90s, and yet he was so integral to every part of politics and culture as a leader of the opposition and as a prime minister. And I didn't think he would be interested in something as fickle yeah. as talking about pop music. And yet, when I considered it, if he was genuine about that period, he would still be genuine about it now. But what, when I approached and wrote to the offices of Tony Blair, I felt it was important... The point I made was that... I, I didn't want to talk about Iraq and what sub people subsequently thought of him, mm. 2003 onwards. It was, it was him and how people felt about him in the 90s, in so, his first term of office. So do you have to write an individual letter to everybody? You're not just sending out a letter saying, I'm doing a big book about Cool Britannia, I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> you have to write something aimed at that particular person. Yeah, and, as try to and, why and, they and try and sell the it. idea to them. Right. Yeah, and then try and get through the, as always, you know, try and get through the, either the record companies or the managers or the PAs. And it's, it's, it, it's. I find it incredibly tough. I don't have the reputation of you two, you know. So it's, it, it kind of almost feels like a nobody. It can trying. be a good thing not to have the reputation. <laughs> well, you, you, you end up saying that you've got all these people that you haven't quite got yet, but you've asked them, you know, and then just hope that they don't know those people and don't check up and find out that they haven't got them. <laughs> But, but I got yeah. I mean, I don't. I'm not a bluffer, really. I should do. I should blag it. That's, and, that's yeah, the old rules. Say so <laughs> yeah. so's doing. I mean, yeah. I mean, so's doing. John Major. So Paul McCartney's Tony doing it, and then everybody falls apart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Damon Albarn was particularly hard uh, because and 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 um, and who was the other one? Uh, Jarvis Cocker. It's a funny story about that. I, I, I wrote to Jarvis 
uh, through his management. And the word got back, because at that point the book was called Cool Britannia, and the word back was, Jarvis will not do it if this book is called Call Britannia. Because <laughs> disassociation with the idea, yeah, and yeah. I hadn't figured that as a, as a thing. Yeah. And, 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 and I'll come back to Jarvis' story in one second, but equally, I got, I got introduced... Uh, to Alan McGee, he phoned me and then he shouted at me for 10 minutes about how hateful Cool Britannia was as a whole idea. And, and so, so Jarvis is saying no, but he has to do it because, you know, if, if not anything else, he needs to talk about um, parading on Michael Jackson's stage at the Brits, as, mm. as you may remember. Mm. And he does. But I was... Uh, I go camping with my family once a year, and we happen to be in Italy this, this one particular year. And, um, and rather than being a field, we decided to take a day trip to Rome. So we were all in grubby uh, uh, camping uh, clothes and dirty fingernails and whatever else. And we decided to go to the, the centre of Rome, and we ended up on the kind of the, the hippest road there is, where there were all the, the major boutiques. And I took my I have three daughters, and we went into, you know, like Prada, where they're selling T-shirts uh, for £700 and slippers for uh, 1200 and whatever else, and madness. And we came out, and walking towards me was Jarvis Cocker. <laughs> so I just went, hello. Uh, and we just had a chat. And, uh, and, and, and I had met him for my first book about songwriting, Isle of Noises, but we hadn't met. We'd done it on the phone. Um, so he, he didn't necessarily recognise my face, but knew my name. And then I was able to say, I understand that you won't do my book if it's called Call Britannia, and kind of... Put him on the spot, and he said, "No, no, I, w- I will do it." They all said, "Don't worry, I've changed the title." Yeah, <laughs> yeah especially for you. In your honour. Yeah, yeah. Gold- and he's brilliant it's in the book. It's rule. They always say yes in person. But Jarvis always. has a brilliant yeah. thing. They, they in- always get people to say no on their behalf. <laughs> but and Jarvis has a brilliant thing in the book, which is he felt that when Polk began to make it. Uh, 94 kind of time, 95, before the real Blur Oasis thing kicks off, he felt that there was going to be a cultural revolution and that they could be part of it. And he doesn't use this terminology lightly. I mean, you use the word revolution, that's a heavy thing. And, and he really felt that. And he ultimately felt that whether it's him, the decade, it, he failed and was let down. And he was intrigued, as, as Tony Blair was, to say, I really hope you find out the answer as to why we failed to deliver what we set out to do and why we ended up being rounded up in this hateful thing called Cool Britannia. You know, well, it's just Jarvis Cocker talking. Well, look, let's go through some of these, some of these stages. You've already talked about this is uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the end of rave, isn't it? This is Spike Island. Where you could, where you could, you could go and see the Stone Roses for uh, for fourteen pounds. Yeah, I mean, this is the precursor, isn't it, to Nebworth, and where where apparently they were dreadful. I'd seen them earlier actually in a, in, a, in an eight hundred capacity place in Birmingham, so I didn't go to Spike Island. My mate went, and he said they were just awful. And 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 he and everybody was kind of looking around, thinking, "Why are you know, we here? Yeah, why is he really singing this badly? You know? <laughs> you know." But that was the strange thing about Ian Brown is I, I've got every record on vinyl. By I love the Stone Roses, and there's something seductive about them. 
but but there's something they're they're deeply flawed at the same time, aren't they? I mean, it, it's oh, there's a famous tape of him at Reading Festival, which yeah. is completely out of tune. Yeah, and so often was the case. And I yeah. went, I went, I met John Lecky one time, who produced the first Stone Roses album, and I said, "What did you do to get him to sing on the album?" And he said, "I just let him sing, but whatever." He enabled in the studio, John Leckie got something out that wasn't on Elephant Stone, which is a single before that album. And they got something out of the roses, which was extraordinary. But it didn't quite... I mean, Cheryl Garrett, who is the editor of The Face, talks about this was meant to be the, you know, the beginning of the, the third summer of love, but it didn't quite become the thing it should have done, this event. And it, and it definitely becomes at Nebworth. And, you know, with John Squire coming yeah. on stage with Oasis... And I asked Noel that in the book, was that the, the symbolic handing, handing down the baton, you know, or handing up the baton, you know, you, you know, from the Stone Roses to Oasis, and was this the moment? And he said, no, it wasn't. We never thought of anything in those kind so of... So a lot of pop culture is, 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 is a reaction to what became before. It's a, it's a, it's, it, yeah. And so what, what happened in the early 90s, do you think, that was a reaction to, you know, the Shoom Club, the Hacienda Club, the... Of the Spike Island was it was was there a rea- was it something that was an alternative or did it just develop evolve from there? Well, that, I think that's like you say with Schumann. I mean, dr- drugs is the, is a, a massive path, this, isn't it? Really, and a freeing up of a of a mindset for sure. Yeah. And uh, I think there was a thirst. I mean, if I think of myself, there was a thirst for guitar music that wasn't present in... Uh, and you kind of had the House of Love and the Wonder stuff, but there was, uh, against the backdrop of Stock Aiken and Waterman... Yeah, human which, beings playing guitars. You know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and it didn't... And, and the that Stone Roses... a reaction to Stock Aiken and Waterman. Yeah. I don't, well, I don't know if it's a reaction. It's, it's just what the, the atmosphere is, isn't it? And then there's that mid and early 90s where nothing quite sits... Uh, as a music fan, and then Suede come along, don't they? And 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 and, uh, and journalists go bonkers for them, you know. Well, like look, they... journalists play quite a considerable part in this. You 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 talk about this cover, I think, of the face, yeah, with Kate Moss, yeah. As being, and how old is she there? Do you know what? I was about to go to Kate Moss's house. I was uh, I was literally going out of the door, and I got a message saying she's pulled out of being in the book. And, and I always wish I hadn't seen the message and I just turned up at her house. Oh, right. She got cold feet. Oh, really? And that had taken about a year to try and get but up and negotiate. A lot of people talk about this cover. This is in 1919. She's wearing yeah. an Indian headdress. And, and inside talk, she's naked. And inside she's naked. And, they and she's about at school amazingly still. important. You know, what, what was what, it about? Sorry, sorry she's, a, she's a school girl. So how old is she? She's she 16. Right? 17, 18. 16, I think. Uh, the shoot and the cover of 1516 it crosses over so it's quite a thing that isn't it and there's a big thing in it actually where I talk to Cheryl Garrett uh, about and it it leads into Loaded magazine and and the depiction of women in the 90s from you know this idea of lad culture set against girl power set against the girly show and quite a few people including Cheryl talk about uh, as a woman, putting on putting naked women into pictures, and they talk about it, it, it's very important what the the eye of the woman is saying, and and whether they're playing to the sexual idea of who they are, 
and in, uh, is it a male gaze or is it a, a female gaze? And, and that, that, that's quite a debate in the book, I'd say. But Kay Moss was a hugely important figure in, in this. Yeah, absolutely, because she, you know, you think of that George Michael video. Do you remember that at the beginning of the 90s when he had all the supermodels? And then, and then Kate Moss doesn't fit into that Amazonian, uh, you know, we already get out of bed for, what was it, 10,000 yeah, yeah. thing. And she's entirely different. And she has kind of a, a look of freedom, doesn't she, uh, and carefreeness. And it's that, her image, in many ways, that personifies what's going to come in the, in, in the following years. And, of course, she then ingratiates herself with Oasis and ends up living in Noel's house in Primrose Hill and she's in with uh, in with the whole that Primrose Hill set with the actors and and it, and, and I think if any one of the great themes of the book is the um, is the cross fertilization of the different art forms and that ultimately is what Cool Britannia is right. that from the from the the art world you have Damien Hirst filming a video for Blur and that Blur played at Goldsmiths College where all the YBAs came from. So there's that mixing, that yeah. Noel and Liam are, 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 are mixing through with people like Kate Moss and Axes, and that when Blur are playing concerts, people talk about for the first time when you went backstage, say, um, say for example, at Mile End, you saw people like David Baddiel, a, a, a comedian. And yeah. what's David Baddiel doing? He's making a pop record... Uh, uh, and he's making a football song. Yeah. And, well, and, come to and that. there's with all the these strange... The everything's yeah. kind of mixing through. We're going to come to that. It's interesting, Kate Moss, I've only thinking about it when you're talking about it, that that uh, you would have thought the model would have been the, the, the person most left by the wayside as, <laughs> as time marched on. Not at all. Kate Moss is as famous nowadays yes. as she was then. She yeah. survived absolutely all of this, hasn't she? Yeah, it's no, an absolutely. extraordinary thing. It's quite a long period of time. And presumably right throughout this period, she was probably the most important person to come to a party. You know, who would you rather have? Tony <laughs> Blair, Noel Gallagher or Kate Moss? Kate Moss, actually. Maybe you know so. I mean? did, you, did you go to a party with her in the 90s? I, I don't believe I did. I don't believe I did. I don't think, I don't think we did. We? No. So we, you, you've, you've also, you know, I think you mentioned this, you know, Suede and, 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 you know, the invention of Britpop. So when is this, Mark? That was You're 1993. Yeah, this is the cover of, uh, we're looking at a picture of the cover of, of, um, of Select. April 1993. A very famous cover, wasn't it? It was kind of and invented and, and the concept of Britpop as a Union Jack and Yanks Go Home. It's quite interesting because a lot of it was a reaction to America, actually, wasn't it? Up till then, it had yeah, been Nirvana, and, 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 been uh, Mud Honey, been Grunge, you know, yes, and American imported music, and the whole idea that the British music was going to was going to come again, and also write about suburbia. You know, Swade wrote about suburbia. Um, Blur wrote about suburbia. It's a yeah, in very different traditions. In very different ways. I mean, yeah. I mean, Brett, Brett, Brett talks about it, and his is a kind of poetic, isn't it? Yeah, interpretation oh, yeah. of of Englishness, and, and Damon's is more. Uh, I don't know. Direct's the right word, but it's 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 kind of fascinating having. Brett and Damon next to each other in the well, book. Damon's in a kind of tradition that goes from the kinks to the kind of squeeze and the jam. And, you know, yes. it's writing about the suburbs. It's writing about real life and real people. The critical thing about this cover is that Brett didn't pose in front of the Union Jack. Select put the Union Jack behind Brett, superimposed. You did <laughs> do and, and What are you Union... saying about journalism here? <laughs> <laughs> and the Union Jack... Is is in many ways the the defining story of the book, in in and and and, and there's a, a dual 
story that gets told. And we all know the Union Jack in the, in, in the 90s in terms of Noel Gallagher's guitar, Jerry Halliwell's sawn-off miniskirt. Yeah, the Brit Awards, yeah. And, and the, 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 yeah, so the use of Union Jack in popular culture. But what I discovered by talking to people behind the Labour Party and people thinking of the left is that many of them had been out to America and had worked on Bill Clinton's campaign. And while they're in the States, is what they realised was that the use of the Stars and Stripes was in lots of people's gardens, was always at the end of political rallies, and it, wasn't, it was a patriotic use of the flag and an apolitical use of the flag, and it didn't feel nationalistic. And those people came back who began to work for Tony Blair. And what, they, uh, what was decided and what was happening uh, in, a, in an organisation called Demos, papers being written, was that there was an attempt to redefine Britishness. And the example being that the flag was invented, I think, in 1801, in, 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 in as much as that in the 1960s in Canada, the maple leaf was used to redefine Canada. And what the thinkers began to say was, was that if, if we don't have to define Britain according to uh, Shakespeare or stately homes or the monarchy, we can define Britain how we want to. And part of that is to talk about people like the Beatles and popular culture. And so this became a huge part of the underground thinking. Uh, and so when Tony Blair ends up at party conference with a Union Jack behind him saying, uh, you know, talking about we are going to reclaim the flag back from 16 years of, of fascistic use, it's... It, it's a separate strand of thinking that has led into that than what has been leading Noel Gallagher and the Spice Girls and whoever else. But I think in the mythologizing of what Cool Britannia is, it gives the impression that new, Tony Blair and New Labour jump onto what's happening in popular culture. And, and then what's even further interesting to that is I met a man who I describe in the introduction as the third man, and he was Peter Hyman. And Peter Hyman was responsible uh, for, the, for writing scripts for Tony Blair. But also, uh, was he co-rewrote Clause 4, which effectively changes Labour into new Labour. And he, he said, he doesn't call it corporate, he calls it the project. Yeah. And he says, the, the failure of the project is the reason why we, the, uh, the, the, the populace decided to leave the European Union in 2016. And, he's, and, and him and Blair both say in the book that had they not taken the, uh, what was happening in the 90s for granted and they'd seen through what the intention was of the project, then that would not have happened. That, that, what has happened to the country now w would not have happened. And it's a... I mean, they say it far more eloquently than I... Than I'm, You've said it very I'm, eloquently. Yeah, yeah. but it's an, ex an extraordinary <laughs> subplot to the book, really. And I think, yeah. you know, this is the thing that you... There's all the, the jolly japes, if you like, and the great stories of Noel taking... Whether he took cocaine and drew moustaches on Margaret Thatcher's image in Downing Street and Chris Evans and, and, and Damien Hirst, uh, you know, uh, f relieving himself out of Groucho windows and cocaine everywhere. But underneath it, there's this incredible story of Britishness 
uh, and 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 that 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 was in, so fascinating to yeah. to, uh, to to discover and, and 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 write about. Well, the thing I want to ask you about while we're looking at a picture of some of the successful musicians of the time, one of the things that struck me at the time was that they were the first generation of musicians who came along who openly kind of paid uh, tribute to the stuff that had happened 20 years before. Yeah, and they're, so they're constantly it's, going on about, yeah, it's about the Beatles and the Kinks. Yeah, it's, it's the first time, Dave and I were talking about this yesterday, that it's the first time that, that, that nostalgia had really come into play, because people weren't nostalgic in the 70s. Prog rock wasn't huh. nostalgic, punk rock wasn't nostalgic, the new romantics, the 80s, none of that was right. But these guys were saying, we have gone back and listened to the Stones. We've gone back and listened to the Kings yes. and the Beatles. It's yes. quite interesting. And also there were magazines like Mojo arrived, which were nostalgic. They yes. were looking back at the past. No, you're ab- absolutely right, because yeah. kind of punk killed that, didn't it? There's, there's, there's yeah. two year zeros, aren't there? Yeah. There's the yeah. year zero of the Beatles and the year zero of punk. And, and from a journalistic point of view, any band that was influenced by punk and post-punk was cool. Suede, Elastica, Blur. The bands that were influenced by the, by the 60s Oasis, Cast, Ocean Colour Theme were castigated. And, and I found that really interesting. But yet, in the Cool Britannia idea, which was written about in Vanity Fair and GQ and Newsweek, the parallel to be drawn between swinging 60s and cool yeah, 90s... Yeah, yeah. We're, we're back. We're back. Yeah, was, yeah, was, yeah. Was, was, was massive. You know, so Noel, when he joins the band, insists that Bonehead cuts his hair because he's not going to put up with that anymore. But they look dreadful, don't they? And Noel says this, that you know, they had no fashion sense whatsoever. But that, that does change. But, yeah, no, that 60s, 90s things, it re- really interesting, and it's a big part no, it's of it. it's fascinating. Creation Records is quite a big part of it. You know, it's obviously it was a music press story rather than a national press story. Yeah. But it struck me that, that maybe one of the reasons that it was so emblematic of the 90s is that Alan McGee, who you interview in the book, is really interesting. He you know, borrowed £1,000 off the Nat West in some enterprise allowance, didn't he? Enterprise to, allowance. To start creation. As so, did Tracy Emin. Yeah, as did Tracy Emin. So it's not just the kind of rock and roll of the whole thing, which is a great story. But as you say, it's, it's the idea that, that you could be an entrepreneur, that anybody in the 90s come along and with, this is a with great... no skill at all, at complete amateurs, but getting small amounts of money and building great big empires. Yeah, and that was part of the reason why Alan was resistant to be in the book in the first place, because he didn't want to be just the guy that pops up and talks about Oasis, which he does. But Alan's story is far greater. And, and I don't go into the Creation Stories record very much, because there's a great book on creation, as there's already a great Britpop book by John Harris. You know, yeah. so It had to be more than that and yeah Alan was on as you rightly say and I, I, I was on Enterprise Alliance and when I tried to and, and the, the crucial thing was for Tracy I mean for Alan McGee or whoever I mean you had to prove that you had a thousand pounds in a bank account which was no easy thing to do and then you had to show projected accounts for three months ahead and have somebody come around and talk to you uh, every month to, and then you could get your 40 pounds a week and it was a way if you're a musician as I was then to stay off the dole but what Alan ends up doing is he joins a task force called the creator, uh, in the later part of the 1990s where he is uh, intrinsic into the idea of the New Deal for musicians again which me as a 20 year old in a band I end up on so uh, but but the point being that Alan was responsible for, for changing the law in Britain. And that's an incredible journey. And it's an incredible journey that lots of these people make. But the idea of the, the Thatcherite thing, I mean, you have Irving Welsh in the book 
saying that he's one of those persons that benefits from Thatcherism and somebody that hated Thatcher. And then you get the, accus- the, the, the YBAs, the young British artists, defending themselves because they're forever being labelled as Thatcher's children. And they're, they're all saying, we hated Thatcherism and we hated what it did to the country. But the, in, in the way in which it, the social situation that we ended up with no money and scrabbling around uh, in recession. It was out of that uh, desperately trying to find resources to be creative is what made them creative, not out of a need of following an ideological point of view, but that was what was lumped on them, if you like. And the same for what Noel Gallagher's always said, isn't it? That he was writing out of adversity, talking about his life, you know, those first two albums, not as some, I want, you know, I'm a rock and roll star, you know, when you stand in front of two, a quarter of a million singing I'm a rock and roll star, it takes on a different connotation to when he's working for British Gas <laughs> and, and he's just got a couple of mates he wants to sing it to. Mm, you know, yeah. you mm. think of it from that point of view, yeah. or we're going to live forever. Yeah. I want to talk to you about football. Yes, uh, great. Which is, you know, a, a key element of this, isn't it? Yeah. Because, you know, prior to this period, you know, Football was not really talked about in, in polite society, was it? No, until Nick Hornby and, and Pete Davis. The Pete Davis, Davis, Davis absolutely all played out. Because you talk about, you know, Arsenal, you know, 23,000 people in the 80s yes. going to a 90,000 stadium or whatever. And, Nick, Nick, and how you didn't dare walk across town wearing your, your, um, your particular scarf. And the violence, you know, and yes. suddenly football just took off, didn't it? Yeah, so Nick Cormie says a new. Nick Cormie says a new change because I went. I went to Arsenal one week and somebody came through the turnstile with a national theatre carrier bag. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant, brilliant line. But also, John Major talks about how he was with the one. Uh, who got the mass investment into uh, the changing of the stadiums in the late 80s uh, when he was, uh, you know, in the, in the cabinet. Uh, in the so when's term. the Taylor report? When's the... When's the 88? Happened? I don't, don't know. I'll take your right? word for it. Uh, yeah. I think so. Um, uh, but football, yeah, now football's absolutely uh, so important to the story because, again, it, it, it's the journey of football. So you have Italia 90... And, and where Gaza's tears, Gaza's, Gaza's tears, tears yeah. and there's a great story in there that the the guy from the FA tells, where he he gets a phone call because he's working for the Mirror at that point before he worked for the FA, and he's got Jimmy Five Bellies. Do you remember him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gaza's great mate. Yeah, he? and he gets yeah. charged saying, uh, right, when you know, Gaza loves trout and he wants some trout, and and they get charged Five Bellies and 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 Steve Double from the FA while they're in Sardinia, to find a trout, get it cooked, and deliver it to Gaza at the, at the uh, England camp. And he tells the story of that, and it's a great little story. But, um, but from Gaza, the, the purpose of talking about Italia 90, and again, Nick Hornby saying, for the first time, you had close-ups, uh, and it was being televised at a reasonable hour. So you had these fantastic, beautiful-looking Italian men and women, oh. and it was a very visual World oh, Cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've then from that, you know, then you have Euro 96, so you have the parallel to, to 66, and by this time England's gone bonkers. Not behind the Union Jack, as you would see in footage of England winning the World Cup, but the St George flag... Uh, in, a, in, in not a nationalistic way, but a patriotic way. But then, as the football story continues, we then get to 98, where David Beckham gets sent off against Argentina. But by, w- but by which point, 
David Beckham is not somebody who's football news on the back pages. He's now front page news and then sells his wedding to Hello... Well, he doesn't. Uh, uh, the story... The, he, Hello magazine by the Victorian David wedding for four million. And that story is told in there by the people behind that who made that happen. And one of the main, main architects of that is Matthew Freud. And, and it's a brilliant story because what I, I learned from that is that the, the PRs behind, uh, behind this whole thing, their, their simple idea was to replace new, uh, political news and economic news on the front page of newspapers with cultural news about pop stars and Chris Evans and footballers, which they wholeheartedly succeed in doing by the end of the 90s. And we see the first vestiges of celebrity culture, which has been manipulated, which is why I bring the Spice Girls into the story. Yeah. Because they're there uh, in Coca-Cola adverts, in every advert going, you know, the, and newspapers suddenly, the mirror went blue for Pepsi. Can, can, well, the thing, yeah. the thing that you have to, you know, pinch yourself to remind yourself of... The, at this time, it's all pre-internet. Magazines yes. and newspapers yeah. were selling unbelievable yeah. quantities. Yeah, and so Hello boom. could afford to spend four million on, yeah. the, on on the Beckham's wedding because they'd get it back <laughs> somehow, you know. Yeah, and uh, and Alan, that's the world that's vanished. Alan Edwards tells a brilliant story where he, he goes over to do the deal with Hello. And he's only got a deal for something like 300000 so far for the wedding. And he gets offered this extraordinary amount of money. And he says yes on behalf of Victoria. And he can't get hold of Victoria because Victoria is mid-flight between London and New York. And he, he, he relates the conversation when he first tells Victoria that he sold the wedding. And uh, and it gets Victoria's reaction, and I won't spoil it, but you—it's not the reaction you might want first, to buy the book. Might, yes, <laughs> that you might expect from Victoria. But it's brilliant to get uh, Melanie C represents the Spice Girls in the in the book, and she's got some great stories. And there's lots of stuff about. Who's I that? suppose what we call lad culture, the girly show, and lad culture. Yeah. Oh, that's Sarah Cox. Isn't it? Sarah yeah. Cox. We're it's looking at a picture of Sarah and Cox. And Kathy Burke on the cover of Loaded. Yeah, and Steve Coogan. He tells a great story where he comes back from Old Trafford, and they're they're singing. To one of the players, there's only one. Uh, oh God, my mind's gone black. What, what's that character? Paul Carf. There's only one Paul Carf. Yes. There's only one Paul Carf, and he said <laughs> it was this incredible thing that he'd made it onto the terraces of Man United as a, as a character actor. But of course, do you remember that Steve Coogan interviewed Tony Blair? Yes, absolutely. At, at a Labour Party conference, and there's a photograph in the book of them. And I found and he had it... to get changed into the Alan Partridge uh, character <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the toilets that he throw airports for some right, reason. Because right? he's going to be yeah, late. Right. But what I found extraordinary was that the idea that you've got uh, Steve Coogan as Alan Partridge, and Alan Partridge at this point in, is not that well known. It hasn't really broken through to mainstream. And he's interviewing, in character, the next Prime Minister. And it, that in itself seems nuts. Yes. Really, really crazy. And it's, it was a great... And he, Steve Coogan talks about that... Uh, 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 and Alistair Campbell, the two of them talk about it. And before the interview, Alistair Campbell talks to Steve Coogan in the past tense, as if he, as if Steve is being interviewed about the event that he's just w done with Tony Blair, to say, and would you say that when Tony did his part, it was all off the cuff? And Steve's going, yes, uh, Tony did all his stuff off the cuff. It was ad-libbed. And, and then there's this fear from, from Alistair Campbell that they will think 
uh, that. Well, it's a risk, isn't no, it? No, I'm getting, I'm getting. No, they were really worried that it was here. a risk. You know that it yes. could have gone horribly wrong. You know. Yeah, but yes. but the advantage was that Alan Partridge was a Tory, wasn't yes, he? The exactly. character Alan yes, Partridge. Yes, that's what I'm trying to get to. Actually, votes for his <laughs> right wing, isn't sense. it? That's right. <laughs> yeah. How, how, the coffee's gone to my head. That's right. <laughs> how far? You know, there's the there's the we're looking at the uh, the oft used uh, cover of uh, Vanity Fair or the UK edition of Vanity Fair, I think. Yes. With uh, Patsy Kensett and which uh, never came out in America. Liam McGallagher no. did it. That that edition never came out in America. With no. Patsy uh, yeah, and I mean, how, how Julia Dreyfus was on that from Seinfeld was on yes. the cover in America. Yeah, that's right. So you know there was a there was there was a great atmosphere of kind of self hype at the time. I yes. remember everybody was saying the world is looking at Britain. Yes. Oasis are the biggest group in the world, and and you think. Can't be. This is not true. But they, they, were, they, they didn't sell that many records abroad. They never broke America, did they? Well, I, I, I would say that if you if you're selling out Madison Square Garden, have you not have you well, not made it in America? Squeeze sold out Madison Square Garden. Well, no. and they were massive at the time, weren't okay, they? Okay, but yeah. I mean, uh, well, they probably weren't Oasis massive in record sales. There'd be enough interested people on the coast to want to go and see them play live. But I mean, yeah. in terms of absolute of chart success, I mean, how much did the, you know the whole Cool Britannia thing? Did it, did it change Britain's standing in the world in any well, way? Well, the extraordinary to... thing is that the, de the defining of Core Britannia, it, it comes from New York. It's America's eyes on Britain. So the editors, the editors of Newsweek and Vanity Fair are in New York saying there is something happen, happening and they send over their editors. And, and, and it's Toby Young who was uh, in New York who pitched the idea in the first place. But it's the... But, but, but oddly enough, the editors in Britain, in New York, in Vogue and at Vanity Fair and such places, they are all British. But it's, it's their eyes. But as you rightly say, Mark, that the American cover, they didn't see, think it was world news. So and also Newsweek, this is the, um, I mean, that says Malaysia on there. So it, this is regarded edition. as a European edition. Right, yeah. And the American edition didn't have on this cover. And I asked the, the two people I spoke to, uh, the editors of this, and I said, well, what's American news then if this wasn't? And to, to Americans, non-American uh, Amer non news is America invade Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah oh, absolutely. <laughs> so the only place those London swings uh, copies were really available was London itself. Yeah, was... and then outside of London is, you know, was it yeah. London-centric is the other yeah. question. I'm was, gonna, it, was it white-centric? I'm going to race ahead here because okay. uh, I, I want to talk about a key person in all of this. Yes. It was Chris Evans. Yes. And TFI Friday was hugely important, wasn't it, in this, in this time? Uh, TFI Friday... Uh, is, is the centre for the Cool Britannia revelry, really. Uh, everything that was Cool Britannia happened on this show. Everybody who was part of it came on this show. Uh, and uh, and I, I remember going to TFI Friday a few times, and it was so exciting. And he was brilliant. He was so... I was with Simon from Ocean Colour Scene, who, who were the, the stalwarks of the programme. I think the Ocean And with the theme tune, weren't they? The Riverboat the, the, Song was the theme tune. They were, it was yeah. the walk-on tune, and they were on it more than any other band. And Simon's a great contributor to the book. Very, very funny. And I remember there's always this thing when you're with somebody... And, who's famous, and Simon was famous at that point, and I was with Simon, and then he was talking to Chris, and Simon walked off to go somewhere or other, and I was left with Chris, and what would normally happen, in my experience, if I was with Simon, is that the other person would, you know, I'm nobody, so he walks off, but Chris didn't, and he just chatted to me, and then invited me down the pub, and it was a, and, 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 and I then subsequently heard that he was always like that, it didn't matter who you were, 
you, you, he was interesting people, and if you wanted a chat, he'd have a chat. And I thought he was great. But as you may have seen from the serialization in the uh, Mail on Sunday, he actually get he actually comes out of it quite badly because, in many ways, the hubris of Cool Britannia gets to Chris's head, and so he, on his Radio One show, yeah, he really begins to push the limits of yes. Matthew Bannister. And uh, Matthew talks about that and the kind of jokes that Chris was telling and the way that, you know, Chris would happily put people down or put people on the spot. And, and, and likewise, it kind of extended through I this period. And you get this great story that Jarvis Cocker tells where Jarvis couldn't bear this programme. And it, do, you, do you remember behind here there used to be a cardboard cutout of Jarvis? Yes. Remember that? And, and Jarvis said he, he agreed to go on the programme for one reason and one reason only, was to get rid of that. that <laughs> so he goes onto the show and he, he walks on, comes on, goes to the, the um, gets his cutout, goes to the window there, opens the window and throws the cutout out. Now the cutout is really heavy and he says, oh, he, Jarvis says he barely could lift it. And he drops it down. And after he does the interview, uh, Lars Ulrich from Metallica comes and virtually kills him and says, why, why, what are you doing? And he said, and my, it turned out that the Metallica guy was underneath the window having a fag. <laughs> <laughs> What a way to go really to kill by a, by a two-dimensional <laughs> Jarvis Cocker. My so, God. you know, the There's Spice the Girls, you know, yeah. they, 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 clearly absolutely enormous yes. in all of this. Yeah, you didn't Tory, talk to any of them. Yeah. The first girl, girl, the first, uh, uh, what do they call the uh, teen girl power? What's the phrase I'm thinking of? Uh, uh, it was Margaret Thatcher, wasn't it? Do it was Girl Power. Oh, right. Yeah, Girl Power. Yeah. Girl yeah, Power. Um, Interesting. They didn't Chris Evans the threw Times, them off the they? set of TFI Friday. Didn't, the what, they? didn't Chris Evans throw them off the set of TFI Friday? Didn't, Did he? TFI Friday. Didn't they come on and sing their a cappella stuff and he just didn't want them to be there? And <laughs> didn't, oh, no, didn't, I know what you mean. Uh, no, no, no. They, they came and... They used to go into people's offices. Yeah, they, that's they, right, they, came, they came to Smash Hits. The Smash Hits did the same. Just yeah. said, no, we're trying Off to work. Go yeah. on, get out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who are you? Get so, out. So, so the, yeah, exactly. So the producer, Susie Applin, the producer of TFI, right. and Rick Blacksell, the producer of Top of the Pops, both tell stories about them coming in and standing on, on the tables and throwing everything up in the air and performing wannabe. And, and, and uh, Mel C, Melanie, says that... Uh, that they were doing this for TFI, and then they saw coming down the corridor, Chris, and he, Chris, just used some choice words to, to tell him to get out of it. He had no time for them. Will McDonald had to dress up as Jerry Halliwell yeah, and go beg book. them to come to come on the yeah. show. I say one, I say one thing in defence of the Spice Girls: that they got out of that business with their sanity and their money intact, and that doesn't apply to most people. I, I don't know about the sanity. I don't know if Jerry well, would agree with that. I mean, they all had. I don't mean that. I don't mean that. The sanity rashly, that they but, went into it with, you know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, they, they they got out without a scratch on them compared to many oh. of the teen sensations. Maybe so. I mean, they, I, they're an extraordinary story, really. They they are an extraordinary story. I mean, I think they they they've all, in turn, in their books, talking about the fallout in mentally from the Spice Girls, and that's a sad side to it. It's a good yeah. read, Jerry's book. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, they're extraordinary. And, and, and again, in, in, in terms of interweaving, what an extraordinary thing that the Spice Girls end up making a record uh, with Ocean Colour Scene and Ian McCulloch and Tommy from Space that becomes the official yes. World Cup song that's of right. 1998. That's right. And yet there's this hilarious story where 
the, the record originally was going to be like a, a band-aid thing where they had signed up all these extraordinary acts of the, the 90s. But when the Spice Girls came in, the acts all slowly left and went out uh, the other door. And Johnny Marr, who co-wrote the song, had his name taken off the credit when, you know... <laughs> and as you say, as you said earlier, you know, there are two, two events that clearly mark the end of this. You know, one is, is 9-11, which is yeah. 2001. Uh, but the one before that is the, is the death of, of Diana, which, yeah. is, which is what year? Remind 97, August 97. the 31st. Yeah, and, and, and I th it's very interesting. I asked Alistair Campbell and then Tony Blair about whether it was true that they were having private meetings with Diana as a, an ambassador for New Labour in terms of the kind of causes... Uh, she represented and ideas she believed in. And Alistair talks about that we couldn't have done anything officially, but she was certainly of a, of a mindset with New Labour. And it's quite an extraordinary idea that, that, had, that had she become the Queen of England as opposed to of our hearts, then that, that, that she would be flirting with a political party uh, uh, and the one in government. That I've, that's an interesting area that they talk well, that's, about. For that's sure. another book, Daniel. That's what they call in the world of history a counterfactual that right, you okay. could, that could be suggested <laughs> next project. But, but in the meantime, it's a fantastic piece of work. Uh, Daniel, Rachel, don't look back in anger. Please say thank you to Daniel. This podcast is brought to you by the Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.